And this is Michael Krasny welcoming you to another episode of the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny podcast. Today we feature tech journalist and writer, editor, and podcaster Jason Snell, an early internet publisher. He was editor-in-chief of Macworld and was editor-in-chief of Macworld magazine, where he continues to write a column. And he frequently likes also to cover sports and popular culture. In fact, we just talked about Star Trek before we became live here. He's a Trekkie. And he began writing about Macintosh computers back in 2006 and was named the sixth most powerful person in Macintosh computing. He created the Incomparable Podcast in 2010, which became a network which he continues to operate. A native of Sonora, he's a graduate of UC San Diego with a master's degree from UC Berkeley, and I am pleased to have him here with us. And remind those of you who are listening live that we welcome your questions and comments as we explore the worlds of computing, social media, podcasting, AI, and much more with Jason Snell. And welcome, Jason. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you here. And you kind of hit your wagon early on to Macintosh, not only in terms of computers, but iPhone services and all the rest of this. Uh, it's paid off for you. It's been a life, a career. Yeah, I did not expect this quite. Although if you had asked me as a, as a kid in Sonora, um, what I was interested in, I would have given you two separate answers. I would have said, I'm interested in computers because I got that. My fifth grade teacher turned me on to personal computers and then we, we got like an Apple II or an, a Commodore pet in the very, very early days. And I it just was dazzled and I was fascinated by uh, personal computers in that world from that moment on. And then separately media, I was always very interested in media, TV, radio, um, and obviously print at the time and writing and I wrote a lot and I made videos and I was on my high school radio station. And so for me, I felt like those two paths were fairly clear. Um, and I got to college and we started and, and, and they came together because our college newspaper was done entirely on, uh, the Macintosh early on and, um, doing in the desktop publishing revolution. That's how we designed. I came at the, the year that they switched over from a full paste up system to a digital system. And so I learned the Mac and fell in love with it while I was learning my trade as a journalist. And in the end, um, those paths converged and they stayed converged, which they, I suppose they didn't have to, but I'm happy because it is two things that I, um, that I was very, very interested in. And I've been fortunate to be able to do that as my career. And little did you know, you'd even be sitting in the seat of the lion eyes, Leo Laporte and twit, uh, doing this week in tech, uh, and doing it not only with Leo, but with Alex Lindsay and Andy Anatko, uh, there's a lot of camaraderie between uh, the geeks. Uh, I use that word advisedly because oh, yeah. I remember once uh, uh, using a word on the air and somebody said to me, that's the, a discriminatory word. You know, people complain about racism against uh, words that are used against people of color. We geeks don't like to be called geeks. I don't know how you weigh in on that or feel about that. I think it cut pretty deep when I was a teenager. And now I have learned to embrace it. And I think that's actually a story with a lot of words that are used against people is that in, in the end, you, um, you, embrace you, sort of it. you yeah. redefine it and embrace it and, and use it as a badge of pride and turn it away from being a, a slander instead. So I, that's, that's sort of how I took it is I, I just said, I think on a podcast this week, I said something about nerds and I said, you know, of which I am, you know, number one, <laughs> a member of that club. And that would have been a thing that would have broken my heart if somebody had called me a nerd or a geek in high school, and they did. Uh, but now I just I, I I go with it because first off, it is true on a certain level, and I'm not going to try to hide that about myself. And second, I don't think it's necessarily a negative. There's a strain of anti-intellectualism in it, and 
you know, and, and like, I don't know, as an adult, as a grown person, it's, it, it doesn't bother me so much. I say so, it with uh, respect, Jason. I also yeah, want yeah. to point out that you, uh, I've been a teacher of literature for many years, a professor of literature, and you also have a great deal of love and valence with fictional art, which doesn't quite tie in with that notion of techies, you know, uh, in many people's minds. So let's not stereotype, right? That's that's true. I mean, there is a broad. I mean, then again, techies. A lot of techies love things like Star Trek, which we talked about earlier. Um, but but yeah, I mean, uh, science fiction, but literature in general, and and writing. And I used to write short stories. And my first publishing endeavor was a short story magazine on the internet back when there wasn't even a web to put it on. And so yeah, I care about the the art and the science, the art and the technology going together is something that um, that always really worked for me. And I find it funny that I ended up covering Apple for my career. And um, Steve Jobs always talked about Apple as being a mixture of the I think he said the on the intersection of technology and the liberal arts. And I think that there's uh, maybe it wasn't an accident that I ended up gravitating toward um, toward Apple stuff for my career. Well, you know about the Snow-Levis controversy, uh, the two cultures that uh, C.P. Snow and F.R. Levis, F.R. Levis was a literary critic, C.P. Snow was a scientist, physicist, uh, but also a novelist. And Levis said, there are two cultures, science and humanities, or science and art, or tech and art. It's not necessarily two cultures that can't be brought, and, and I spent a lot of years involved in this, both as a professor and as an academic uh, researcher, the way to bring these two together. And you've done it and you've had a lot of success. And I want to give you kudos on all of that. You also have a high bar for social media. I want to take this up because I know you use X. Can't get used to calling it X, but let's call yeah. it X. Um, and what do you think about this transformation under Musk? I'd like to get your thoughts. I, um, well, I mean, the truth is it, I don't love it and I use it a lot less than I used to. Um, I mostly use it because um, as a sports fan, uh, there's a lot of sports Twitter still exists there. And so I have not yet found a place to replace it. So my I have a bookmark now for my sports list on, on Twitter, on X, and that is all I really um, use it for. I, I, I sometimes stumble into links to it elsewhere, but that's the primary use I have for it. I'm mostly, you know, I'm experimenting with some other social media things, Mastodon and Blue Sky and Threads, and, and they're okay. I, I think it's teaching me a lesson about just being less focused on social media in general. There's also been a retreat. A, a lot of the social media I do now, because uh, I always was communicating with my readers and my listeners, a lot of that has gone into more private channels where we all have Slack or Discord that we're using to talk to people. And it's not everybody on the internet. It's a sort of a smaller selected group. And the behavior is better in that circumstance because everybody knows who you are. And if you behave badly, you're going to be judged by it, which is not what happens out on the big wide internet. Um, I, I'm, I'm sad because Twitter was a place that I loved. And I think Elon Musk fundamentally didn't understand it. I think he was coming at it from a sense of how a very famous rich man uses Twitter, which is not how the product actually works for most people. I think that he got caught. I mean, as we all know, he got caught making, I think, an idle threat that was like a boast. And then Twitter called him on it and took him to court and said, you have to buy us now because you said so for a price higher than anyone would reasonably buy Twitter. And so he decided to do it. And we've been sort of dealing with the destruction of the product since then. And, and the biggest thing for me, honestly, as a, a computer fan is that the, I used to use an app called Twitterific to read Twitter. And it was a third-party app by a company called the Icon Factory. I, it was my most used app, essentially, on my iPad for a decade. 
And uh, one day, and literally it was one day, Elon Musk ordered that all the third-party apps for Twitter be turned off. And so my number one reason I stopped using Twitter as much is that my app went away and I didn't, I don't really like the Twitter app and I don't really like the Twitter website. And, uh, and so that, that made it easier to say goodbye, but you know, I'm still on there looking at the latest, you know, reports about college football or, or major league baseball, but, um, but it's, it's a shame, but it's like, it's just, it's complex. It's, it's a demolition, a almost systematic demolition of Twitter in a lot of ways. And I find that sad, but it's, um, it's not just one thing that's happening. It's a whole lot of things that are happening. And I, I, I hope in the end that a lot of people will do what I did and, and just spend less time on that kind of social media because I don't think it's actually good for us. I, I mostly use it for self-promotion. It's a lot of toxicity. Yeah, yeah, a lot of it is. A lot of toxicity. And yeah. the thing that, that I sort of uh, ruminate about a lot is how Musk comes off as a in his own mind, at least, as a free speech absolutist. And there are many things to say about Musk's genius, of course, and all the extraordinary things he's done. But he's not an absolutist. If things go after him, he doesn't like them. Uh, right. And he tries to control things in ways, and he also helps stir up a lot of the worst of the toxicity. But talk about apps dying. Uh, I'd like to get your thoughts about the Castro podcast dying. Uh, I mean, that's uh, major in many ways, isn't it? Yeah, Castro is a third-party app for podcasts. The beauty of podcasting is unlike Twitter, which had a single company running a single platform at the at the center of it, podcasting is still, believe it or not, a like the web, a wide open ecosystem based on a standard. And so you can have right now what we have are the giants, right? Apple Podcasts and Spotify that support podcasts, but anybody can write a podcast app. And there was a time when Apple Podcasts wasn't very good where Google, con which continues to sort of not do a good job building podcasts into their ecosystem, and Spotify hadn't yet decided to take on podcasting, where a whole bunch of app developers built their own podcast apps, and they uh, became uh, very successful, I would say. And Castro was one of them. And the beauty of it, and the beauty of Twitter apps in the, in the heyday of Twitter apps as well, is every developer, we talk about creativity and technology, Every developer has a different take. Like just because there's a standard of like, here's a podcast and here's the feed it comes in and here's how you do it. How you portray that to a user, how, how it functions, there is an art to it. There is a philosophy that has to be behind it. I've seen podcast apps that are implemented by people without a philosophy and it's like a bunch of checkboxes and it's a nightmare. Castro was unique in that they had their own special view of how podcasts should work. And they had a very nice graphic design and they had this idea of a queue, the idea that you just sort of like have a bunch of podcasts come into an inbox and then you choose which ones you want to put in your queue and you kind of triage them. It became very popular. Um, never, I think, one of the most popular independent podcast apps, but very popular. And um, and now they seem like they're they're for sale, but they may not be sold. They may be shut down. It's unclear. I think it says something about where we are, not just in, not just in podcasting, but in, in technology in general, which is if there is a massive company that has a, an investment in something, especially if they're the default, like Apple is with the podcast app, you can, you can differentiate yourself as a third party app into being something better, but the bar is very high. Everybody like the default is just so powerful. Like most I think Apple's Maps app is fine, but the reason that most iPhone users use Apple's Maps app is that it's the default. And to get Google Maps, you have to care enough to go seek out Google Maps and download it. To get 
Spotify, you have to go seek it out and download it. And you don't have to do that with, uh, with podcasts or music or maps. And that leaves a lot less room for those independent developers. And they, many of them have found it, uh, rough sledding and it's too bad because, um, Apple and Spotify have their own views of what podcasts should be like too. And they're not invalid, but because they're the giants, their views sort of reign over most of the podcast industry. And it, I, I kind of liked it better when there were many more podcast apps out there and there was not one defining um, or two defining standards. But I think in the technology world, there's so much advantage to being big that you end up in a situation like Microsoft with Windows and Apple with Mac or Google with Android and Apple with iPhone, where you end up with sort of the two giants and it's still competition of a sort, but you don't have that kind of like let a thousand flowers grow diversity that you get if there are 10 different Twitter clients or 15 different podcast apps. And that era seems to be ending. Well, what do we make out of the fact that Spotify, another recent layoff, the, the third, about a third of their employees and uh, heavyweights and stolen, stolen, which is a Pulitzer Prize winner, gone, uh, or not at least renewed by Spotify. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the, the big paychecks that they were paying. I mean, there may be ample room for more podcasts, that's what we keep hearing, but this huge digital ocean, I mean, you've done with Leo Laporte, or Leo himself has done over 800, he's had a good yeah. deal of success, but that's more the exception. There are thousands and thousands of podcasts out there that can't even be recognized. Nobody knows who they are or how to find them. That's true. There's very much a long tail. I have some podcasts that are, um, you know, 10,000 listeners, 20,000 listeners, 40,000 listeners. I'm well aware that we're in the top probably half of 1% of podcasts. Even though we're not those huge names, the, the, it goes to small very fast. There are lots of extremely small podcasts. Um, it is, the way this gets covered is interesting because I saw a story the other day that said, the podcast industry is falling apart because look at all these Spotify layoffs. But, but once you dig in, what you see is a lot of the investment in making podcasts huge by putting lots of money into the content has proven to be not as successful. And Spotify is the best example of that. Not as successful as they had hoped. And what's happening is less an invalidation of podcasting as a form, as an invalidation of the value of the investment that went in during that inflationary period where everybody was trying to get in and, and do a, basically a gold rush for podcasting. Now, Spotify did establish itself as a major player. Speaking right about that as a man that. who was born in Sonora, we want, I want to gold rush. Yes. That foot, that I went to, there. I went to Columbia elementary school, which is literally next to the gold rush state park. So everything I do is in a gold rush. Context. You know, gold I rushes. Think, yeah. I, boy, do I, you're looking for those nuggets. You're panning for gold. All the metaphors that I can possibly use. So Spotify's, they spent a lot of money and then, yeah, they, they lost a lot of money and they laid a bunch of people off. But Spotify is absolutely one of the two giants in that field. And they had, they had some reasons they did it. Uh, Spotify, a huge portion of Spotify's business is music streaming. And the problem with music streaming is as you grow, your royalties to the record companies grow. And so um, they were really constrained on how much increased profit they could show because they ultimately were selling a, a non-differentiated product. It was just reselling music that everybody else could sell and paying a big royalty back to the record companies. So podcasting, the idea there is every minute that somebody on Spotify is listening to a podcast instead of a, a, a something from a record label 
is an opportunity for Spotify to save money on not paying the record labels and make money by selling advertising into that podcast. So I think they succeeded in a way in that they are now, I think definitively, if you talk to to people who monitor the stats, one of the two giants of the industry along with Apple. Uh, I think that worked. But I think that the way they spent their money was not necessarily wise. Buying Gimlet, I mean, they bought a lot of high production value, expensive stuff. They tried to make it exclusive to Spotify. That didn't work. What about $200 million to Joe Rogan? Or what about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry and uh, all that money to get Springsteen and President Obama? I mean... Yeah, and that that was a mistake, right? And I think that they're living that down now, but they they are... I I do think they are still building a decent business out of it. I think that Spotify has has had a lot of difficult business decisions and they, they have... The shame of it is, I think that they, by taking all of those players off the board, they prevented a more interesting and sustainable business to be built. Now, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say if you are, whether you're Prince Harry or, or, or Barack Obama, or whether you're the guys who founded Gimlet, it's very hard to turn down the money. But I do wonder in a different circumstance, if some of those podcast studios could have built a more sustainable, interesting business creating content outside of Spotify, but how, I don't know, how do you say no when Spotify says, we will write you a check and more than just write you a check, we will write you a check for far more than you are probably actually worth, which is what they were doing. And that we see that in a lot of areas. The TV sports rights is a similar area where checks are being written for purposes that are not based on the fundamentals of the business. They're based on larger strategies. And the problem with that is that if the larger strategies change, those checks don't make sense anymore. And that's when that's when bad things happen as they have to Spotify and as they're starting to happen to a bunch of sports teams who are losing their TV deals because the company with the TV deal, it doesn't make sense for them to pay the money. So they just file bankruptcy. Well, one of the things that distinguishes this podcast uh, is that we take questions and I'm going to go to a couple right now that becomes interactive. I don't know how many podcasts Great. these days are interactive, but... Questions for Jason Snell. If you have one, just send them to us. Um, then I want to go into talking with you about AI and where you get stories from and all kinds of things that are going around in my head. But here's Paul who says, what has been the biggest change in the tech industry during your career? Oh, wow. I, I, huh. The, the most, as a media person, I ha- actually have to say the media, but I uh, follow me here. When I started I remember sitting in uh, the journalism school building at UC Berkeley reading, pouring over Mac User Magazine because new laptops had just come out, the new PowerBooks had just come out, and I really wanted to buy a PowerBook and and have that be my first laptop. And I must have read the, whatever it was, 3,000-word feature article and, and poured over all the pictures dozens of times, dozens of times. And that is because that was literally the only information that existed about those products was what was in a magazine. The newspapers didn't really cover it. Um, So I would say the internet completely changing the availability of information and also changing how technology companies communicate. And then I'll throw in then the growth of technology companies to the point where it's no longer only of interest to people who are interested in in, in the technology industry, but it is of interest to everybody those are the big changes. And I do think they start with the rise of the internet and the, and the way um, so many industries would probably say that, that the difference between the nineties, like I, I started at Mac user in 1994, 90 really as an intern in 1993. And, um, and now 
it's the internet. Like everything, the way you communicate, if you're a tech company with your customer, the way that the media works now versus the way it worked back then where there were big gatekeepers and there were only a handful of places you could ever even read about it. And that the rest of the world didn't care really. Like there was a curiosity about, oh, computers. That's the, there's that famous clip from uh, a morning show. I think the Today Show where they, they are struggling with what the internet is and what ha Katie Couric, I think, is struggling with how an email address is formatted and like, that's what it was like. And now it, it's completely transformed all the, all the businesses. So I'd say the internet has driven a lot of change. Remember talking about the super highway. Remember all that talk? Oh yes. Yes. I mean, it, Katie Couric trying to define what the that super highway was and what yeah. the effect of it was going to be. And same thing Lots with AI now, which is why I want to talk with you about AI. Uh, I mean, yeah. there were a lot of good things, but there was also concern about the darker side of things. But mm -hmm. here's Paul, Peter, go from Paul to Peter. Peter says, how does it feel to be the one being interviewed? <laughs> um, it's fun. I, I do. I think, I think he's making reference to the fact that I host a lot of podcasts. So I end up talking to a lot of people and interviewing people and having conversations. I, as somebody who has hosted a lot of podcasts, I love being a guest on podcasts because I don't have to do the hard work. The host does. And I'm aware of how much work it is for the host and the people behind the scenes to make it happen. And it's a treat. It's honestly a treat to not be, uh, to not have to have that burden. And instead, if I have a story that I want to tell and it happens to work with your question, I can just tell it. I'm not worried about when our next segment is or when I have to go to break or how many things are on my list. And so thank you for giving me the luxury of being a guest. Well, thank you for being our guest. It's a treat <laughs> to have you here. And uh, as I said, I want to talk with you about artificial intelligence. Um, Google Tech saying essentially they're matching ChatGPT and Open AI Wednesday, in fact, uh, people will be hearing this later, of course, on Spotify and Apple, but uh, they released uh, their own chat bot um, mm -hmm. with new Gemini technology. And uh, they're claiming that as Google's claiming it's superior. Yeah, it's all in a demo. What we've seen with AI is that all the demos look great and then you try to use it and you realize all the things that are wrong with it. And then somebody who's big into AI yells at you that you're doing it wrong, but the whole point is you're trying to use it and it doesn't, it, it's always more constrained than they make it out to be. The demos are very impressive. I look, I am, I'm excited about AI. I think it has a lot of potential. I think it's also just absolutely being overhyped right now. And I think that there is a gold rush again going on there where everybody thinks that there's a breakthrough that is going to make them be like all these tech giants that have all this money, they invest their money in things like AI because they're worried about being supplanted in the next whatever it is, right? That there will only be, like we, like I just said earlier, maybe there are only two or three players in the end. They want to be there in that game of musical chairs when the music stops. And so they're happy to spend lots of money now because they don't want to be left out. The, and that drives a lot of the, the hype and it drives a lot of the, the talk in the, in the industry and a lot of the product announcements that are not entirely, um, like we've seen a lot of hallucinations and unreliability and, and, and they're all learning from that. I'm excited about it conceptually because of, I, I try to view it as being a way to get around the limitations that we have as people. And I think that fundamentally computers have always been about how do we take this binary device and get it to do things that, that we don't want to do. And it might be math, like the first spreadsheets, it was math. And I don't want to erase that column and put the numbers in and recalculate everything. And now I don't have to do that. And, and paste, paste up and all sorts of things like that uh, for newspapers. 
Well, I think one of the things that's happening now is that AI is saying, um, like I have a friend who's a novelist and he, it is a multi-book series and he's writing book six or whatever. And he doesn't remember because even though he wrote it all, our brains cannot catalog like computers can and cannot connect like computers can. So just to use him as an example, if he can feed his novels into an AI model and then say, what color is this character's eyes? What color are their eyes? Or um, when was the last time we saw them fire a firearm? You know, things that are actually very hard to search for in the text of a novel, because there's so many different ways it could be worded. And you're searching for the actual string of characters that tell you the answer. And that's the brilliant thing about uh, AI potentially is it has, it is able to keep those connections in its mind, so-called and give you an answer. Now you may need to check. I think that that's one of the things we've learned is some of the things AI says are not, are not right. They, they get things. AI wrong. hallucinates in fact. Exactly. Exactly. But there is great potential to say a, a new generation of AI that you train on things like my friend's collection of novels, or you, you teach it how to use the internet. And then it does the, the searching for you and brings you back a summary that you can check against. Like there's a lot of potential in stuff like that, right down to the way we use our computers now, which have streamlined so much of our lives. But if you've ever sat at a computer grinding away on three different apps and sort of like, I pull this thing off the internet and then on, in a web browser, and then I switch over to my spreadsheet and I paste it in there. And then I do a calculation, which generates a chart and maybe some numbers, which I move over into this document. You can imagine that that's a place that AI might be able to help you. And you could say, take the things that are on this web page and put them in the, in the spreadsheet and calculate this out and put it in my document and that the AI could just do that for you. Um, there's a lot of potential for, you know, just saving us a little bit of time or uh, some clicks or the, like I said, I think this potential to think of the big picture in a way that like my friend, the novelist simply, he cannot keep, even if he reads his novels back, uh, all back to back, by the time he gets to the end, he's forgotten all the details about the first book, right? And uh, the computers don't do that. So I think that that's, there's a lot of potential here, but I do also think it's overhyped. I think the potential for it to end the world is overhyped. Um, but again, like with podcasting, some of the hype is just driven by the money because there's a lot of money being invested right now. And the people who spend the money want the hype. They, they need that hype in order to succeed. So I, I, I think everybody should be skeptical, but, well, on but the not, other hand, not that it's not a thing, but that it, you should be skeptical of it, even if it is interesting. Well, I like your notion of skepticism and also your excitement about AI, because I share some of that excitement. But at the same time, in fact, the new Google uh, bat, bot is going to be able to write term papers, um, mm -hmm. those kinds of things, uh, maybe even not as serious or not to be taken as serious as, I'm sure you're familiar with the P doom things uh, that are coming out. It's like sports betting. You know, what's the likelihood? What are the odds? What's your number as far as the likelihood of an apocalypse? And they're not necessarily talking about monsters that are taking away our human characteristics and using our reason and so forth. What they're right. talking about is like launching of weaponry or the kinds of things that bad actors can do, surveillance and privacy being totally uprooted and so forth. I mean, there are a lot of darker sides to this. Yeah, I think the the vision of like the Terminator that everybody always talks about yeah, is, I don't buy into that is unrealistic. Yeah, yeah. But if you think about how interconnected our society is and how we rely on computer systems for so much of our fundamental parts of our society, 
And the, the moment that I started to think about what the threats are from AI um, a little differently was when I thought about hackers. Because we think a lot about like hackers, whether they're just sort of rogue hackers or they're state hackers, Russian hackers, NSA hackers, whatever it is. And then we know that that governments and other organizations exploit weaknesses in iPhone code and especially in sort of badly managed servers. And they could, you know, mess up a, a, the, a dam somewhere. They can do and a lot of damage. So they can do a lot of damage. Yeah. So what I started to realize is I think that is one of the greatest threats from AI is that AI is probably going to end up being a very, very, very good computer hacker that learns very quickly and moves very quickly. And I think that's the the biggest danger, I think, in the in the near term is the idea that we've got systems that are kind of insecure and that some of them get exploited by some people who are often like elite hackers working for nation states, but that a lot of this stuff, if you follow it closely, like there's a lot of stuff that, you know, researchers find and they, they tell the tech companies and they fix it and it's never out there in public. Uh, and, and that's a big portion of these bugs that I think the danger you, you, that we all face is that you'll have AI systems that are far more efficient at, at finding and exploiting problems and they may not choose to shut down that dam or turn off that electrical grid or whatever but they're going to be able to do it and and perhaps at the behest of bad actors um that that's the big danger because a lot of our society uh, our whole society is based on computer code that is old and inefficient and insecure and if you imagine what if a hacker knew everything or even half of the insecurities in all of our interconnected computer systems, it doesn't, you don't necessarily have to have them firing off a nuclear missile, right? If they crash the right systems, our supply chain breaks down, uh, the shipments, the truck shipments to supermarkets break down the, like the whole, our water supply, our water supply, our power. And you think about like the issues that happened during COVID with the supply chains, imagine if all the computers break down and all the interconnections break down, it, it could be a, a, a guy I know a little bit named John Birmingham wrote a book called uh, or a trilogy called zero day code. And his whole premise is literally that that's like the end of the world happens because a hacker shuts down the wrong few things and it breaks everything. And, and it's chilling because it's not unreasonable that something like that could happen. So I'm more concerned about stuff like that, about AI being mm-hmm. used to break our fragile systems than I am about AI, you know, getting control of a tank and driving it through a city and firing at people. Well, those kinds of things that you have concern about and I have concern about, and I share your concern uh, in terms of proportionality of concern, uh, are the sorts of things that can be potentially apocalyptic, not necessarily on a huge scale, but this P-Doom thing fascinates me. There was just an article about it in the New York Times, in fact, because... People are actually giving numbers. What's the possibility of the doom or, mm. or things coming to an end as far as bad actors or the kinds of things that you're talking about? i got lots of questions, though, naturally. As soon as you bring up AI, <laughs> um, it's a catalyst. Nathan from Oregon City says, Jason, you often share ways you use automation on six colors and at home. I often find it too complicated to be worth it. How does automation improve your life and how do you identify things you want to automate and make more efficient? Yeah. I mean, this goes back to what I was just saying, which is one of the things that I think is great about computers is that they're dumb and they do what we want. And me doing something 
like uh, a, a hundred times or like, I'll give you an example. We're doing on one of my podcasts, we're doing an award uh, process right now where we have our listeners submit things they think should win those awards. And what we end up with is a, a list of hundreds of hundreds of text submissions and going through that line by line and counting them out would take a very long time. And I was able to write a little script that looks at the long hundreds long list and outputs each item that was in the list and how many times it was listed, which is a lot easier to deal with, right? That, so it goes from being 800 things to saying, well, this one was mentioned 200 times and this one was mentioned 228 times. And that's the kind of stuff that I like to automate. I am a big proponent of using um, computer automation to save time. And I'm a big opponent of sort of doing it for its own sake. I, I really, um, I, but I, I think this question gets to another important point, which is it's not as easy as it should be. And that's another place, honestly, where I think that something like AI could actually be very useful is if we can get to the point where instead of having to open even something like shortcuts, which is Apple's new next generation automation system where you can drag in little blocks, it's still really complicated and kind of like computer programming, even if it's easier than what came before. But it would be really nice if you could just tell your assistant on your computer, here's what I want to do. And it could do it or it could ask you some probing questions about the details and then generate that for you. Because at the end of the day, computers are going millions of cycles a second. They don't get tired. They don't get distracted. They are great at doing that kind of mind-numbing work that people used to have to do. And that's why I love automation, is if I can identify something that I am wasting my time doing, if I can find a way to, so I'd never have to do that again, I love that. And if it, and if it, if, if it takes me 20 minutes to figure it out, but I know that I'm going to save tens of, uh, you know, or hundreds of hours over the course of using this thing, it's totally worth spending the 10 minutes. Could you just say something? We've got lots of questions here. I want to get to as many as we can, but what you think is really the best or most optimal way to move as far as regulation is concerned. Some people are saying we need an FDA for uh, AI or the, the problem and the concerns have to do with uh, surveillance and privacy. We need to regulate, we need transparency, but uh, we're kind of in the wild west here still. Uh, and I think there's a lot of concern about facial recognition. That's what Musk was talking about when he was yeah. talking about, you know, it's worse than nuclear weapons, which sounds on the face of it, a little bit crazy, but uh, there, there are real concerns, profound concerns here again that we have to take in a stock. Uh, what do you think and ought to be done in terms of regulations, especially right away? I think the challenge is that our government regulation, technology moves so fast that our gov government regulation falls way behind. And you also end up with lobbying by tech giants that ends up being winning the day because and you have a lot of ignorant they, legislators who don't really it, know what the hell is going on. Exactly. And there are lots of attempts to educate the legislative process about modern technology. There are groups that try to do it, that place people inside offices to teach the people involved. But yeah, it always lags. And, and part of that is good because there are often unintended consequences to the legislation that happens. But I, I do think that there needs to be something at a fairly high level that is that is stating some principles that the whole industry needs to follow. I, I do think that that probably needs to happen. But it, do I think that that's likely? Probably not, just because I, I, I see how kind of broken our system is. I do wonder if it will end up being uh, from a more aggressive group like the European Union that comes in and says, we're going to lay down some very specific Well, they're rules. already working that out in European right, Parliament. Yeah, The problem is, is that they'll just do that work here in the U.S. and 
it won't matter. And the, the AI apocalypse, if it happens, is going to happen any, everywhere anyway. And it doesn't matter what legislation is. I, I do think they need to be watching it. I just think that this is one of those things that's a potential weak spot for humanity in general is that our legislation is, is, is behind the times, uh, partly by design and partly just because the technology is moving so fast. And, and we have plenty, I can give you plenty of counterexamples where like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was signed into law and it was intended, it had a lot of ramifications for the online world, some of which were positive and some of which were negative and very few of which were obvious at the time. Uh, because you're just, as a, as a lawmaker, you are taking a stab at what you think the effect of your law is. But the truth is the, uh, the progress of time and the opinions of the courts will change it into something that might be very different than the intent. And that, that, that's the danger of any of these things is you may legislate something that ends up being quite wrong about, you know, what you should have actually done. Well, we've got Tim from Austin, Texas, who wants to know how you see AI affecting the media itself. Oh, the big story a couple of weeks ago about Sports Illustrated getting caught with their pants down using AI to write stories. I've I, And there's a lot of that that's going on. I think in the long run, AI is going to be used for what I just described, which is ways where computers can th think about things better than humans. AI is bad at having perspective and, and original thought, but it is good at sweeping out numbers or writing. I think press releases via AI is a thing that's probably already happening because there's a rule. There are rules you have to follow about what a press release looks like in terms of journalism. You know, I, I, I think there is going to be a lot of it. And I think that there's probably a place for it. Like, I think there are like, um, you know, the idea that you get a, a, a bunch of sports data and you generate a story that says what happened in this game, like that's good, but it's better if somebody who knows a lot about a base about baseball sees the game and talks to the people afterward. And, and that the balance is like finding that I, as a writer, what I find is everything that I get out of chat GPT does read like somebody who is kind of faking it. Like it's a, a kid writing a term paper and doesn't really understand it but can say the right words. And it's, I think it's really wordy. I'm sure that's all going to get better, but I feel like what AI doesn't give you is perspective. Um, and it's not going to give you anything that is original. And I think that, so I think that it's going to change the media just like the internet changed the media, but I I'm hopeful at least that it's going to be uh, a tool that gets used by media people rather than just sort of swamping media people out of the equation. Now, maybe this is my business, so maybe that's wishful thinking, but I, I believe even as it grows and gets better and better, all it can really do is synthesize common uses and common opinions. And I think that that's where experience and knowledge and being a human being who knows about the broader world can be uh, an advantage still, but we'll see. We'll see. My family mantra. Um, actually, one of, <laughs> a good one. of our regular folks, uh, Reed up in Santa Rosa, says maybe AI, AI could be used to formulate the legislation or regulate itself. Oh, I no. like that, Reed. Um, this is Jeff, though, in Denver. I was going to ask you where your stories come from. And uh, he says, as the tech landscape continues to evolve rapidly, how do you stay up to date with the latest developments and trends? Uh, it's hard. I do try to read a lot and watch, um, watch YouTube videos and, um, I've lost some of my sources because of Twitter kind of falling apart. Although a lot of the tech Twitter did end up on Mastodon. And so I see some of that there and that's a very useful, 
for a long time when Twitter was going good, I actually used a service that Twitter bought that um, aggregated my timeline into just the links that were in it and, and used an algorithm to raise the ones that more people were talking about of the people I followed. And that was really great. That was really useful. Um, I will go to things like tech meme from time to time, but a lot of it is what's in the zeitgeist on Mastodon. Um, what do I see being reported on not, you know, not just like big websites, but also a, there are a bunch of sub stacks and a bunch of blogs that I, I find interesting stuff on. Um, and so I, I try, I try to keep up. It's very hard. One of the things that I realized going from being somebody who had 40 journalists report to them to being a one man band in a lot of ways is how much one person can cover. So in some ways what's happened is that my, even my vision, which is already sort of like, let's just talk about Apple. It gets, it, in some ways it's gotten narrower and narrower, not because I don't want to cover all that stuff, but because I can't, I, I, I am one human being who only has so much time in his day when he's awake and I have family and I, I have other things I want to do with my life too. That, that, um, so that, that becomes a challenge, but I do try to read a lot and see a lot of videos and see what people are talking about. And in terms of the question of like where I get ideas about what to write about, you know, I hate to say it, but they come to me. Like they come to a lot of writers. I have a system where I have a, a reminder list in uh, re the reminders app on my iPhone and on my Mac that is called story list. And whenever an idea occurs to me, and yes, it happens in the shower uh, an amazing amount of the time, I will either call out to my voice assistant or I will pick up the phone and I will say, here's an idea. And that's the list that I, um, that I jump off of. And it, that's worked pretty well. I mean, sometimes I'm grinding away for a story idea, but I, you know, I think, I think they come to me, the, the challenge is just getting them down. And I might've in a previous life written them down in a notebook or something like that, but I, I just write them down on my phone now and that works pretty well. Well, a lot of it's current. Uh, I mean, certainly where yeah. I, as a journalist, where I get stories from, I think it was your story in, uh, six colors about Apple now, uh, disclosing requests for push notifications, uh, it was in six colors. I, right. That's my colleague, Dan wrote that. Yeah. One. That was yeah, your column. Yeah. It's a fascinating yeah. story. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. in the news and a lot of people aren't aware of what's going on with that. And, uh, right. it opened up a lot of, uh, recognition on my part of, you know, how foreign governments want to find out all this, uh, information in terms of privacy and how it affects privacy and so forth. That was, it was really a good story. Um, a lot of people with questions, actually speaking of Apple, here's Susan from Buffalo, New York. who says, how do you think people will actually use Apple's vision pro? Oh, wow. That's a good question. The Vision Pro is the this this VR headset that they're going to sell for a lot of money starting next year. I, I'm not sure anybody knows how people are going to use it. I think that even Apple, who has some ideas because they've been able to use it for the last few years inside Apple, doesn't know. And I think they're okay with that. I think that they are playing a long game here. They really want to... Um, it goes back to companies spending a lot of money because they don't want to be left out. I think Apple is concerned that a, a AR headset or glasses or something like that is the thing that might replace the iPhone someday. And if that's going to happen, they want to be the ones to do it. And you could see that maybe in 10 or 15 years, we, our glasses just tell us everything that, uh, that our smartphone does that, that might happen. And I think Apple is happy to hedge their bets just in case it does. Cause they don't want to lose the iPhone and be left without a, a, a key product like that. But I think Apple is, they're building the Vision Pro with some uses in mind, but they're also well aware that one of Apple's great assets 
is their developers, their third-party developer community. And this has been the case since before I started writing about Apple. This has been the case since the Apple II, really, is that something about Apple and something about its products leads a lot of very creative computer software developers to flock to their platforms and want to um, want to try them out. And the rise of the App Store led to a gold rush, I'm going to use that word again, where even more people poured into Apple's platforms. And uh, every Apple platform now will run software that, if you learn how to write an iPhone app, you can write software for any one of Apple's platforms, including the Vision Pro. And I, I think they're going to use that. So they're going to build this thing, and they're going to release it, and they're going to see what happens. And they may have some ideas, but I do think they're also hoping that someone will come along and say, I think this is a good use for Vision Pro, and it's going to unlock something, and they're going to say, aha, we got it. The danger is that nobody does that, and it just sort of like kicks along for a while. But I think that that's part of Apple's hope, is that they're building a platform that uh, that somebody's going to figure out what the what we call the killer app is for it. Or failing that, that they're going to get feedback from the people who use it in year one saying, you know, what it's really missing is this. And then they use that to decide what they're going to do in year two. And then they build from there. But it's it's not a foregone conclusion that it will have anything. Um, and I don't have a I don't have a guess. I, I it, OK, yeah, but you I just get a, a you gave a very good description of how they were. I mean, their paradigm of how they work and how they operate. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, if I had a guess, having used it for all of 30 minutes in uh, June, I would say I feel like it being immersive for things like entertainment, especially things like sports, but also movies. I think that the, that immersion aspect might be a starting point for things like if you can imagine, especially since Apple has their deal with Major League Soccer uh, an option to wear this thing and be completely immersed in a live soccer match where you can sort of choose where you're sitting and you've got the best seat in the house. I have a friend who's a big NBA fan. There's a clip from the NBA in Apple's vision pro demo reel that we all got to experience where you're behind the backboard in full 3d. You're watching a player dunk the basketball and it is spectacular. And I do wonder if maybe in the short term, at least People say, well, if you've got the money to buy this thing, it's got an unparalleled entertainment experience. Apple's trying a lot for things like regarding productivity, like you'd use this as a computer. Maybe that'll work. They're gonna make they're gonna try it and we'll see what happens. But um, I think that's gonna be a harder sell, especially since it's a solo device. Really, it doesn't work with other people. So if you're somebody who spends a lot of time around other people instead of on your own, I think it's gonna be a harder sell for them. So it, I, I'm fascinated. I can't wait for next year, because this is one of our, our planet's biggest and most rich companies building maybe their most cutting edge product technologically that they've ever made. And none of us, including people at Apple really know how it's going to go or what we're going to learn and whatever happens. I think that is going to be the story of the year next year. Well, Tim Cook presumably knows our people up in his stratosphere. Oh. But what they say is that your your battle plans only last until you meet the enemy. I think once a product ships and you see how people are using it, they may discover it's a whole new and ball I think game. maybe they even want to yeah. discover that people the the people out in the world don't want to do what Apple thought they did, but yeah. they want something else. And then the key moment right there is a key moment you got to learn from that and uh, adapt. Well, we've got another Apple question for you. Robert in Los Angeles says, "What are some of your favorite Apple shortcuts?" 
Oh, shortcuts. So we're back to automation. Uh, I don't know. I've built a lot of things that are, uh, I have a little box called a stream deck, which is like a little button with a bunch of, you can set what buttons are on it. It's a bunch of different little buttons. So I have like, I do a lot of podcasts like this one. I have a button that starts recording uh, because I do that. And so I've, I've set that up for a lot of my podcasts. I have a button that I press when I start the podcast and it like connects to the zoom and it starts my recording. And when I'm done, I press it again and maybe it turns off the lights and it, and it saves the recordings to the right space. Things that I used to do. I have automations for things like uploading my files to the right place or posting an episode of a podcast where I have to take a file and upload it. And then I have to open an app and I have to type in the name and it, the automation just does that. And then Michael, you might like this one or, or your editors might like it. I actually have a, an automation that um, when I'm recording a podcast, I, I have a bunch of labels on these buttons for things like crosstalk, um, cut out, swearing, or background noise. And when I press those, I have a little file on my desktop that has the time code of when it happened and what it is so that I can give that to my editor and say, at four minutes and 25 seconds, Michael Krasny said a bad word and we need to cut that out. And that is, again, I could write that down, but like if I'm trying to talk to somebody and also writing a time code and trying to have a conversation and then I have to retype that all to send it to my editor, I that's the kind of stuff that I love to automate because I built like a little tool for myself to do my job faster. And that's the stuff that I love. A lot uh, easier than, uh, well, we use Frame. That's pretty good, you know, in terms of edits. You can just type it in and... Let the editor yeah. know what you need. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So for a lot of my podcasts, they are, I'm just recording a file on my system and I need something to sync it to. And so I built a little thing that does it and it's great. And I use it all the time. It's great to know you're building your own things, so to speak. Here's Thomas from Atlanta, Georgia. We can build a response to his question, which is, is checking AI going to slow down the use of it? Should we have an AI ML version of Asimov's three laws of robotics? Yeah, I... That's an interesting idea. I think the challenge is, first off, that any rules that you set, how do you get everybody to go along with it? And and it does happen, right? I mean, we haven't had uh, we haven't had a nuclear bomb since World War II on a on a target. Um, there are other things like that. We haven't, to our knowledge, we haven't had uh, an actual human clone because everybody in the world agreed that that was a bad idea and you'd be shunned from society if you did that. Well, we didn't know if so, we could really do it either. That was Yeah, uh, but but we've learned that we could and haven't yet unless we have and we don't know. I mean, we don't know. But like what I'm saying is it's really hard to find a way to keep the genie in the bottle once, you know, once you open the bottle. Like the genie's going to come out. And so, uh I think we should try to put up guardrails. I think that's absolutely the case. I think the um, unfortunate thing is that a lot of the guardrails end up getting erected after something bad happens. And until then, we may have to just wait and see. I'm glad people are talking about it, as silly as some of the discourse is about the Terminator and all that. I'm glad people are talking about it because it, it even if you don't believe that it's going to become self-aware and, and kill all humans, uh, you can still believe that there are threats that could be caused by this that we need to address and start thinking about them as a, as a society. What about biases? I mean, we're going to have some real problems with AI with biases and also with educating young people, uh, especially the digital divide. It'll exist with AI as well. You're going to have young people who 
from different communities are not going to be able to avail themselves of AI in the way that those from more privileged communities can. I mean, this is the real sort of grist for the mill in terms of what yeah. people are arguing about now on campuses and throughout the world. Well, I mean, you talk about biases, training models, the way machine learning works, whether you call it, believe it is AI or not, um, machine learning works by creating these training models. And the problem is that they're only as good as what data goes into them. And as you mentioned, our biases go into them and it's not just our personal bias. It's the bias of everybody who's in the sample. And so the danger is, and this is, I think happened a lot in the tech industry is if you're a wealthy tech industry person, the tech industry alone is very wealthy. Um, it is primarily male. It is primarily white and Asian. What you end up with is biases. And it doesn't mean that those people are bad, but it does mean, and we've seen it, that other groups who are not in North America are not in California, who are not of those particular races, who are not men are underrepresented in the, in the model. And that means the model starts to behave like a guy working in Silicon Valley. And if you try to apply that model to life anywhere else, it's not going to work right. And I, I think Silicon Valley, I mean, I've got an Apple story, uh, just as a tangent here, Apple designed a pair of headphones for their AirPods. Um, and they, they said that they used, uh, a set of ears. I know it seems weird, but like common ears, but the common ears that they chose were not actually common. They were a very small subset of the earth's ears, uh, human ears, and they didn't fit right on a lot of people. And when they did a revision to their AirPods, they actually told me in the product briefing, we made a real effort to base these on a much more diverse set of ears from all around the world, because what they had learned was they had lost perspective and they thought that if it fit in their ears, it would be fine. And that the ears around the world were all pretty different and it needed to cast a broader net. That's the danger with AI in, in one case is that it's going to believe it's going to have a, it's going to reflect our own biases, unconscious or conscious uh, against us. And that the, the tech companies who are building these things are not necessarily willing or able or capable of adjusting against it, especially if you're using the internet as your, your basis, because the internet itself and people who post content on the internet is not necessarily representative of the users of the internet or of humanity as a whole. So it's a, it's a real danger and you're right. It also does sort of feel like we're going to potentially lead to a place where people who have the means will be able to have their AI agents do all of this work for them. But what about everyone else? Will they, will they, it be a barrier and they won't be able to do it. Here's Jay from Sheffield in the UK and wants to know, Jason, what has been the one technology advancement excluding AI in the past, which excited you the most? Oh, wow. I mean, there have been so many. Um, I, Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say, I went to college uh, in San Diego in the fall of 1988, and one of the first things that they did was say, um, "You're gonna work on our, our newspaper, and a bunch of that stuff comes in on our uh, computer system, which is uh, so you need to go get a login." And I had to go to a computer lab and fill out a form and hand it to somebody, and they handed me back a card with my username and my password and I was on the internet and as somebody who had used like computer bulletin boards and things before where everybody sort of like online communities existed, but they were so limited. 
And that moment where I was suddenly on the internet and there were people all over the world and the internet was much smaller back then, but still there were people all over the world talking to each other and that I could send emails to my friends at other colleges and they got them instantaneously. We could chat essentially instantaneously, even though my friends in Seattle and I'm in San Diego, we're in opposite sides of interstate five thousands of miles apart. We could still chat with each other a thousand miles apart. So, um, I, I think that and everything that came from that and uh, was a huge moment that I was very excited about. And part of it is I could see where it was going. I could see that it would reach everybody eventually, but that was the fall of 1988. It really took like 10, 12, 15 years for it to happen. So being able to get that glimpse of what the future was going to be to this day, I see people arguing about content moderation and bad behavior online and things like that. And I think, wow, I had this conversation in 1990. Uh, and it was about, you know, Usenet news groups or something arcane back in the day, but you could see the form the future was going to take. Um, it just wasn't there yet. And that was incredibly exciting. There's a very, um, I think important question from CJ in Downington, Pennsylvania. And I thank all those uh, who have put questions forward here. Uh, many of them really extraordinarily good. Uh, it's always good to know there are people with intelligence and with curiosity who are listening and wanting to find out things that they need to know or want to know from people like Jason. Uh, how can we reframe discussions about AI to shift from fear and skepticism towards seeing it as a source of optimism, creativity, and innovation? That's a great question. Isn't um, it? Yeah. I mean, just it's I, all about framing. <laughs> it It is. I think the challenge is that a lot of the companies that are building AI right now are having a hard time communicating what the potential is of it. I think that they, whether they don't care or they're really just focused, I think they, I think they come from a tech industry perspective that is lacking some of the perspective necessary to do it. I, they, they should build, they should have an industry marketing group and they should hire some very, very smart marketing people to talk about it because there is a conversation to be had here and to change about all the potential that AI has, because I really do believe it has huge potential to be a tool used by people, not a thing that kills people or a thing that makes people lose their jobs, but a tool like the personal computer that makes your job better. It is going to cause a lot of job loss, though. There's no it, question of that. It is, although a lot of, yeah, I mean, a lot of that job loss turns into different jobs, but that reaches and retraining and things like that. But it it is also true, just as personal computers did. Like personal computers, once you had a spreadsheet on a computer, there were probably some people in your accounting department who weren't necessary anymore. Uh, so that is going to happen. But I think there's also positivity about it making our world easier and uh, giving us more time and making us more efficient. And again, if I was the marketing person, I wouldn't talk about all those negative things, right? I just talk about the positive things. And I, I wonder if the tech, I mean, not to, not to slander them a little bit with another word that's not nerd or geek, but if the tech bros are capable of thinking about it in that way and, and to bring us all around to Apple, that was one of the genius things about Steve Jobs is that his perspective was just broad enough that he kept thinking what is the regular person who wants to buy a product? What do they want? And what do they want to get out of it? And he was really good at doing that. And um, this industry right now lacks somebody with that kind of uh, approach and perspective. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Apple. Uh, what about all this 
concern over uncompetitive behavior. I mean, the regulators are supposedly after them, aren't they? Apple's playing the same game they played, I'd say, since the entire time I've been covering them, which is that Apple wants to go their own way and do it themselves and have complete control over everything possible. That has been a part of Apple forever. Certainly since Steve Jobs came back, he made sure that that was in the DNA of the company. The problem is that Apple is so much larger and more powerful now than it was back then. And those were those were corporate traits that were instilled into Apple as a survival instinct. Apple almost went bankrupt. Steve Jobs built a new culture and part of the culture you know, my dad, um, who's been gone for more than 10 years now, he grew up in the depression and he never threw anything away and he fixed things with, with wire from hangers and like it never, that depression era experience changed him and his worldview was never the same. And Apple is like that. Apple went through that near death bankrupt, near bankruptcy period and Steve jobs put into the corporate culture a uh, culture that this will never happen again. We're never going to rely on anyone else. We're going to control everything. And the problem is now they're now they're a giant and they're still behaving in that same way. And I, I really think the behavior is the same. The difference is now they control markets. Now they move markets. Now they have enormous power over the world. You get into and, the mentality of too big to fail is what happens. Uh, yeah. Well, you're the underdog and, and you, you fight rough like the underdog. And then you look up and you're, you're not the underdog. You're the undisputed champion yeah. and everybody dislikes you now because you still fight like you're the underdog. And that's sort of what's going on. So they're going to have to adapt. They're starting to adapt, but they're very reluctant. I think that they've done a lot of harm to themselves in not, uh, in deciding to fight tooth and nail against every potential regulation instead of realizing it's going to happen and that they need to cut a deal. And so I think that they're, I think parts of their business are going to be substantially changed by regulation. And I think part of it is inevitable and part of it is their own fault for, um, for waiting too long and not believing it would happen. One final question from Ben in Jackson, Wyoming. Thank you for the question, Ben. He wants to know what advice you'd give to aspiring tech journalists and podcasters looking to make their mark in the field. Oh, wow. Um, do it because you love it. Um, start now. Don't wait around for somebody to give you the okay. Um, you know, you and you and I, Michael, have have hosted shows. You've been hosting shows. You have thousands and tens of thousands of shows. You have to do it. Do it. You know, write articles, do podcasts. If nobody's listening, it doesn't matter. You will learn. You'll start out not very good, and you will get better over time. And um, and you have to you have to love it. You have to love what you're talking about or or some aspect of it, because if you're just sort of doing it as a, I'll bring it up back again, gold rush, uh, and you're, you're, the money's here, so I'm going to do it, it's not going to work because you need to have enthusiasm for what you're doing because it's going to be hard. And then even then, there's no guarantee of success, but I would say if you love it and you work hard at it and that you're consistent, and that means don't start a podcast and do three episodes and then abandon it, right? Like be consistent. If you do a blog post every day, if you do a podcast post every week or every two weeks, um, that's how you hone your skills and that's how you demonstrate to other people that you're serious about it. Excellent and advice. Yeah. Sage advice. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better. Um, I want to, first of all, thank all who joined us for this great matter with Michael Krasny episode live and all of you who will be joining us in the future on Apple, Spotify, or graymatter.show, where you can also sign up for membership. That's great with an E. Thanks to our team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, Jeff, and Colleen. And to this episode's special guest, Jason Snell. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Jason. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.